This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Law School Show. My name is Mina Allenjar, and I'll be your host for today. Joining us is Professor Y.Y. Brandon Chen, who is a health and migration law scholar currently teaching at U Ottawa as part of the common law faculty. A lawyer and social worker by training, he has researched extensively on the intersection of healthcare, immigration, and the law. His areas of interest include healthcare ethics regarding migrant workers and non-citizen populations. Amidst the COVID pandemic, we have brought him here today to talk about these pressing topics and discuss the challenges that we currently face in healthcare and migration law. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Chen. It's my pleasure. So feel free to tell us a bit about your background and your journey into law, going from student to scholar, and what drew you into those particular areas of interest. Sure. Um, as, as you mentioned at the introduction, um, my journey <laughs> took a bit of um, twist and turn, right? So before going to law school, I actually studied social work, and that actually built on my um, university education, which is, um, you know, I was double major in biology and sociology, right? So already there, I knew back in university, I was interested in something that's health-related, particularly migrants' health, and that in part has to do with my own experience as a first-generation immigrant to Canada, like many people um, in this country, Um, and and the the struggle that I witnessed uh, when my parents had to navigate the healthcare system on their own. Um, And so, so because of that personal experience, the idea of healthcare and healthcare access particularly for women, uh, sorry, for, for, for migrants. Um, just, you know, something that really intrigued me. And so when I went to social work, um, I had in mind that I wanted to do something in this area. And, and fortunately, after I graduated from my Master of Social Work program, I was able to work at an organization in Toronto uh, and the project that I uh, was fortunate enough to, to work on w- was aiming to improve the mental health of immigrants, refugees, and people in Canada without any legal status who happen to also be living with HIV. And so, as you can see there, you start to see the intersection between uh, immigration status and health and healthcare outcomes, right? And how do we navigate the intricacies between those two systems trying to um, improve uh, people's health and well-being? And so that experience really um, concretized the kind of work that I want to do and reassure that I do have an interest in this area. And, and building on that, I decided to go to law school um, not so much to become, you know, a, a lawyer working in a big law firm. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But for me, the reason um, behind 
going to law school was really wanting to um, build upon my skill sets relating to advocacy and specifically advocacy for migrants who struggle with um, healthcare access. And so, so I, you know, in law school, I took all health law related courses I could get my hands on. And um, I also um, stumbled upon um, human rights courses and constitutional law courses, particularly on the Charter uh, of Rights and Freedoms. Um, that you know, those kind of courses together um, to this day form the foundation of my research and teaching, and and so really that was kind of the journey um, to to where I am. But obviously, you know, the last bit of that puzzle is um, me completing my doctoral study um, at U of T in law, and, and my my doctoral dissertation looks specifically at um, migrants' entitlement to health and healthcare and looking at what exactly is the normative foundation uh, for us to claim that there is such thing as a right to health and healthcare for, for migrants of all sorts, right? So ranging from immigrants who might have permanent resident status in the country to those, as I said, you know, who are undocumented or people with who has no um, legal status in country at all. That's incredible that you are able to draw on your own personal experience and also recognize the gaps in your community and try to fill that with your legal knowledge. That's such a great experience for, and thank you for sharing that. Just moving on to my first question, you know, oftentimes immigrant law and immigration law and healthcare law can be classified as separate things. Is that really the case? And where do those intersections often come to play? I think, you know, in law, like in many areas um, in our society, to be quite honest, we tend to have this, this idea that things are neatly chopped into different domains, right? So we like to categorize things. And so in law, we break things into different practice areas. So immigration refugee law seems to you know, occupy one part of the legal practice. And then health law is its own separate practice and, you know, perhaps some, you know, many, many other legal areas. For me, though, because I look at the issue of migrant health care, it's almost inevitable that I have to deal with the health and health care related laws that pertain to everybody, right, that, that dictates who has coverage and who doesn't. But at the same time, also looking at immigration and refugee laws, oftentimes as a determinant of people's health, but, but also as um, a determinant of, again, who has health care and who does not. And, and I, I think that you know, because of the topic that I, I research and work in, that you know, these being able to kind of draw on both of these areas just seemed natural to me. And, you know, I'm very um, grateful that I have the opportunity to be mentored by experts in both areas um, that, that, you know, really allow me to 
develop my own voice, uh, being able to find an intersection between the two practice area. But I think that there, you know, the same the same can be said about many other areas of law, right? So that's the first point, which is not to think of different areas of law as silos, uh, nor, in fact, right, thinking about law versus other uh, professions as silos, right? Law and medicine, for example, could very well um, have a lot of intersections. Now, going back to, to the question that you posed, you know, especially for migrants, where the immigration and refugee law and health law intersects, it actually um, come up in, in multiple ways. One, as I already alluded to, the intersection comes at um, the point where we're determining who is entitled to publicly funded health care here in Canada and who, who is not entitled, right? So here in Canada, we seem to have some kind of stratification based on whom we think, quote-unquote, deserve publicly funded health care. And so if you're a citizen or somehow you're you know, on the path to become a citizen because you, you have passed certain test or eligibility screening and we deemed you to be um, deserving, you know, you're able to access health care with um, public coverage. But then for some other populations that, that live in this society, for some reason we just don't think that they're deserving, right? Perhaps it's because the way that they come to this country or perhaps it's because the fact that they're not actively, quote-unquote, contributing to our society in a way that we want them to. Um, and for those reasons, you know, they, they seem to be left out of the public health care coverage basket. So that's one area where I see the two areas of the law intersect. But, but another area, uh, which I also have alluded to, is this idea of immigration and legal status as a determinant of health, right? So before we even get to health care, ideally we like to keep people as healthy as possible without needing health care, right? Yes, an ideal world, world, yeah. No hospitals, no health care, yeah. Well, exactly, right? Yes. Preventive work. Um, and, but unfortunately, you know, our, our immigration and refugee system in this country, like in many countries around the world, particularly high-income countries, um, the way that, that the system is set up, it's such that the process itself of navigating through this immigration system is very draining for people, both physically and mentally, right? And, and you know, just beyond just, you know, the, the fact that you have to wait a long time to get some kind of outcome, right? That aside our system putting a lot of hurdles requiring to do, you know, you have to prove that you have certain, you know, uh, for example, whether it's, it's uh, financial stability or that you have, you know, you meet certain language skill sets or that you are able to work in a particular profession, right? So all those kind of constant demand to prove yourself worthy and having to kind of do that um, by liaising with, government bureaucrats like that is not the most pleasant experience let's just put it that way so oftentimes people you know complain about that process really become a stressor for them um and and we just we also know that statistically speaking newcomers to 
Canada, especially in the beginning, uh, in the first few years of, of their being in the country, there's a higher risk of them being of low income. And, and so, so having to deal with that, right, the daily necessities, perhaps it's you know, trying to work enough to bring enough money home to buy food or to, to be able to pay for a, you know, stable and safe housing, you know, that in addition to everything that they have to, to contemplate as they maneuver through the immigration refugee system, that's something that, you know, we as law and policy makers need to think about, is there a more humane way for us to deal with that process, right? But, but that's just another example where law, uh, immigration and refugee law and healthcare can intersect. So those are two examples. There are obviously more, but I think those are the two most uh, prominent examples that we often encounter. Yes, those are very powerful examples. And I'd just like to follow up, you know, it seems as though legal status can sometimes stand in the way of someone's access to health care. So where do you see the ways in which the law could actually step in and overcome that and help provide health care, especially to these populations that so need it? For our purpose, we should think about two, two aspects. One is whether or not a person has legal entitlement to publicly funded health care. Because we know that healthcare, unlike any other kind of goods and services provided in our society, it's just darn expensive for people to pay out of pocket, right? And you know, even if you have private health insurance, there are a whole host of problems relating to private health insurance, right? So you know, you have to pay premium, which is not cheap. The fact that you know some private health insurance has restrictions in terms of you know what they don't cover, right? If you have pre-existing conditions, they often don't cover those. And sometimes you know the way that private health insurance work is that you have to pay something upfront for people, uh, for the company to then reimburse you, and that in itself creates also a hurdle. So for all that 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 problem, the private health insurance route is not. A sufficient alternative to publicly funded healthcare, I would say. So, so really, it's really important when we're thinking about whether people have access to healthcare in this country to think about who has entitlement to healthcare. And so, most most of us have access to publicly funded healthcare through provincial or territorial insurance plans. So, in Ontario, it will be the Ontario Health Insurance Plan or OHIP. Unfortunately, OHIP doesn't cover everybody. The, the way that the, the regulations are set up, you need to have specific, there's a list of you know, more than a dozen legal status that you need to have at least one of to be able to com- be considered as a resident. And you need to be a resident having fulfilled certain residency requirements, right, X number of days living in Ontario per year in order to qualify for OHIP. So... You know, for for example, if you're an international student in Ontario, you don't qualify for OHIP, right? Instead, if you're in university, then, you know, you most likely are going to be required to participate in a private health insurance plan called the University Health Insurance Plan, which, again, comes with the whole host of problems that I previously mentioned in relation to private health insurance. 
And similarly, if you're a person without legal status in Ontario, in fact, across Canada, then you don't have publicly funded health care per se. So that's, that's one problem, right? The fact that you might not have health care coverage that are mandated by law. And so, so a potential, the potential strategy for legal reform when it comes to that is to, to amend the law such that you know, if we think that it's necessary and desirable as a society is to extend healthcare eligibility to anyone who's residing in, you know, in the country, right, or in the particular province or territory that we're looking at specifically, without using immigration status as an additional eligibility criteria. Right? So, but in, in Ontario, it would be as simple as removing, you know, a certain section in the relevant regulation that mentioned you either need to have Canadian citizenship or permanent residency status, or again, as I said you know, more than a dozen other legal statuses, right? So just remove that um, from the regulation and simply using, for example, um, the, the residency requirement that you need to live for 185 days, uh, you know, out of each calendar year for you to qualify for, for OHIP. That, that in itself might be enough, right? So that's one way to think about facilitating migrant access to healthcare. Now, having done that, then the second aspect about people's access to healthcare truly has to do with the on-the-ground kind of processes. So sometimes people might have entitlement on paper, right, to, to publicly funded healthcare, but that does not always translate into actual healthcare access on the ground. Uh, some people might not be aware that they're entitled to health care to begin with, so they will never use that health care coverage. Or some people may be afraid of using health care coverage, even though they're entitled to, to, to such a benefit, because rightly or wrongly, there's a belief that if you use certain public-funded health care, that might jeopardize your immigration outcome. In fact, you know, in the migrant worker context, uh, especially the uh, the seasonal agricultural worker context, we know that that to be true in, in many situations where you know studies have found that workers who access healthcare sometimes are seen by the employer as you know, someone that, that is not as strong or resilient, right? And, and therefore, uh, because Canadian employers hold the ability to invite specific workers back next um, harvesting season, then they may not invite those um, particular seasonal agriculture workers back if they had access healthcare, for example, or at least somehow give the employer the image that they're somehow weak. And so, you know, so for all that reason, um, people might have healthcare entitlement, but not actual access on the ground. And so there's another uh, site uh, for law reform, right? Thinking about what are some of the laws that are playing in the background that impede people's utilization of their legally entitled healthcare benefits. Yeah, you spoke about silos and we already see employment law even coming into play when we discuss these issues. Exactly. Exactly. Yes.
And so I was wondering, you know, you speak of just changing regulation. What are some of the counter arguments that you often encounter or people's resistance towards these changes? And can you speak on, you know, are these misconceptions or what is some of the basis that the government has for not willing to implement these changes for migrant populations? There, there are definitely a, a, a few common arguments that's, that's being made, right, for, you know, against extending health care to everyone or to, to more people than we currently do, right? So one of, that, one of those arguments goes something like this. There is a fear, presumably, that if we extend health care to a certain group of people, that that might encourage uh, more migrants to come to Canada and, you know, the way that some of these migrants come to Canada may not always, you know, be through the legitimate channels. And so, you know, it might be that, you know, for example, if we extend healthcare to refugees and asylum seekers, that some people may file fraudulent um, refugee claims in Canada with the specific goal of getting healthcare uh, in Canada, in mind, right, uh, and so so this is what I often call uh, the fear for um, health tourism, right, being um, one of the impetus behind government being hesitant to extend healthcare to some migrants, and in fact, we see this being one of the arguments being put forward by the federal government back in 2012 when it decided to cut refugees healthcare, right? So there's a program called the Interim Federal Health Program run by the federal government that provides healthcare to refugees and refugee claimants. And there was a cut back in 2012. One of the reasons given by the government was specifically that they do not want people to come to Canada to, prov uh, to, to claim fraudulent uh, refugee claims with the view of wanting to, and I am quoting, um, the government back then, the idea is so that people won't come to Canada and be uh, enticed by, quote-unquote, gold-plated healthcare, right? And, and so that's one argument. And I think there's quite a, I think this, I will put that in the category of being a myth, right? Somehow people are attracted to come to Canada because they, you know, they really want to take advantage of the publicly funded healthcare. When you look at available um, research study, when you ask migrants themselves, right, what's the reason behind you choosing one particular country or location for, for your migration as opposed to some other locations that you might have the option of going to? Publicly funded benefits in general, right, including healthcare, is very rarely the Kind of the drawing factors. In fact, the for the most part, the reason why people, to the extent that they have some kind of choice, right, in, in deciding where they want to go, they tend to make that decision based on where they see themselves to have the best working opportunities, right? So employment opportunities usually is kind of up there, along with whether people have existing family ties, they tend to prefer to go somewhere that they already have, know someone, right? Whether it's friends or family. Um, and, and then also whether 
they're able to speak the language of um, the country they're going or whether they're familiar with the culture of, of the place that they're going. And so that, to some extent, speaks to some for, formal colonial ties uh, between different countries. And so, so those are the main reasons and, and the fact that you know, people want to go to a country because they want to take advantage of publicly-funded health care and doing you know, this so-called health tourism Really, you know, that doesn't, you don't find that through research. And in fact, back in the 2012, back to the, the refugee healthcare cuts, right, there was a case that was brought before the federal court challenging that, that cut, arguing that, you know, that was unconstitutional in violation of various sections of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Justice McTavish of the federal court indeed found the cut, among other things, to be a violation of Section 12 of the charter, right, being a cruel and unusual treatment, and that it could not be justified under Section 1. And, and there, under Section 1, Justice McTavish actually looked at this health tourism argument, and, and in her response was that, well, she had given the government plenty of opportunities during the course of trial to present some evidence that shows that people are coming to Canada right, because they want to apply for health care. And somehow they're, they're doing this by filing fraudulent refugee claims. But unfortunately, the government just couldn't uh, come up with any um, evidence. And, and, and so, so I think that in and of itself, as I said, you know, I was put this whole... Um, category of arguments into the myth category. Now, the the only other kind of other argument that's often um, put forward against expanding um, healthcare coverage to migrants that I will talk about has to do with the cost that this might potentially have, right? Whether this is too much of a burden for our society as a whole to absorb. The idea is that this is going to cost too much money you know, that is going to siphon resources that's already in short supply for Canadians when it comes to healthcare, And so we, we just cannot possibly do this, right? Perhaps a friendlier version of the argument goes something like, sure, let's wait, extend healthcare to migrants, but let's wait until Canadians themselves have adequate health care before we think about extending it to migrants, right? So that's kind of a friendly, friendly argue, a version of that argument, but essentially it's the same thing, right? It's this consideration, it's about the cost. Now, I, I think that, you know, unfortunately we don't have really, really, really good um, data that shows how much it will actually cost uh, if we want to extend healthcare to everybody who's a resident in this country. And that, you know, my understanding is that that kind of math is, is difficult to come by for a variety of reasons. But, but we do know that it's possible that by extending healthcare coverage to some migrants, you know, particularly coverage relating to primary care, right? This is about you know, people being able to go to their family physicians for routine checkups and so, that kind of stuff. If they have that kind of care, some studies suggest that we might save money by being able to catch 
you know, the development of certain illnesses at the earlier stage than we would have otherwise. And so and if we're able to identify certain illness at early stage and treat it, that's often cheaper than waiting and for the, the, the illness to run its course. And oftentimes by the time it's caught, you know, you will need extensive surgery and that, you, you know, when we talk about surgery, it, it's just a lot more expensive. Yeah, to drain on resources. And as we mentioned before, like the preventative measures are often the most cost efficient. And I'm sure there's many studies that could speak to that as well. Exactly. So so that's one possibility that, you know, even if you might spend some money upfront to ex- expand publicly funded health coverage to people, it, you might recoup that uh, investment right down the road. So, so you know, that that is one possibility. Now, another thing I want to say, which has to do with the, the current COVID context, is the fact that, so, so here in Ontario, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but since March 2020, the government actually has introduced a few fee codes. So, so essentially, what allows the healthcare practitioners to do is that for those who are previously uninsured, since March 2020, there are certain treatments or, or, or um, health services delivered by health practitioners to these previously uninsured persons. The health practitioners is able to build the government by entering these fee codes. And, and so, so that has essentially the same effect of extending a basic amount of healthcare coverage to these previously uninsured migrants, right? Including people who are undocumented, for example. And so that's been going on since March 2020. Yeah, that's incredible. You know, we're approaching two years with that type of program. Yeah, exactly. Right. And and the the whole point was that, well, you know, during the pandemic, right, it's important to make sure that everyone who needs healthcare gets it. But I, I think going back to the the argument relating to cost, right? I think what we see through this, what I would call experiment, is that, well, at least for two years, um, we have had this happening in Ontario, and we don't really see the sky falling, right? So, so you know, I, I think that, and again, I, I just want to reiterate that we're not talking about, you know, what the Ontario government did, right, since 2020, was not to expand the fall rate of healthcare to everybody. Rather, it's, you know, for certain more, again, we're really talking about primary care, right? We're talking about basic assessment of certain illnesses and the provision of treatment that's, you know, that requires less than 10 minutes of visit to a doctor, right? So, so something very basic. But even that, right, we know it's certainly doable and it doesn't seem to have a huge physical detriment to our, our government, and so I think in that argument about this is somehow just too costly and possible for us to even think about it, I think it, it requires further scrutiny. Yes. And, you know, something the COVID pandemic even highlighted was that our communities are interlinked. So it's difficult to say that migrant populations are exclusive from citizens and therefore their health care is unrelated. As we saw, the outbreaks affected us all. And especially in particular, migrant populations were disproportionately affected by COVID, as you can probably speak to. And so what do you say to that argument? You know, why should we care about migrant health and how is it tied to our community? For sure. Um, and, you know, I think that's the argument about 
you know, we need solidarity, right? Because um, health has no bounds, especially when it comes to transmittable illnesses, right, as we've seen. Um, and I think you have uh, encapsulated that argument quite well yourself by saying that, you know, as demonstrated by COVID, it's not as if you can neatly divide our society into you know, migrants and everyone else. And, and the fact that you simply protect the health of, of everyone else um, is going to somehow protect you from um, the migrants, you know, to the extent that there might be some uh, COVID transmission going on within that population, right? People mingle with each other in our day-to-day -day lives. And, and in fact, many uh, migrants in our society take up what we, you know, at least at the beginning of the pandemic, seems to think as essential help, uh, work, right? So these may be people who work, you know, to harvest the food for you, right? These may be the people who work in your home and, and take care, do the babysitting for you. These may be the people that work in your grocery stores and doing the bagging for you. Or these could be the very healthcare uh, practitioners right, that are caring for, for patients. And, and so, so it's, you know, I think the fact that our society has relied so much on the labor of migrants, then to, to say that we're somehow able to when it comes to you know, provision of healthcare, that somehow we, we're still able to just safeguard, quote-unquote, our health by only providing healthcare to, to Canadians or, or you know, permanent residents, not others, I think that's quite naive, right? Truly, when it comes to transmittable illnesses, uh, we're just as strong as our weakest link, right? As long as there is some kind of virus that's still present in our society, the virus is still going to circulate. And so, you know, I made that argument uh, quite often in the pandemic, right, just to underscore the need for solidarity and, and the fact that we need to think about our health as a community rather than our health versus theirs. That's an important message. And as you touched upon, Migrant workers come here and they offer these essential services that society needs to function. But similarly, they require that healthcare to function themselves. And so it's all interconnected, which just underscores the importance of caring about migrant health as well. For sure. And, and certainly there is a, a degree of um, reciprocity, right? So, you know, if, if they have contributed to our society, ensure that our society is able to, to keep functioning, even in times of crisis, such as during the pandemic, well, then surely their contribution invites certain rewards, right? And we know in our society, publicly funded health care is part of that package of benefit that the government provides to you know, citizens or people that live in this country, right? So, so why not migrant workers or migrants more generally? I want to thank you so much for sitting down with us. And just before I let you go, I was curious as to what's on the horizon for you and what you're looking at currently in your research on these important topics. That's a great question. <laughs> Something that, that, that I ask myself uh, constantly. Um, but um, I would just mention that there are a couple of papers that I'm currently working on. And so that, that defines my, at least the short-term uh, projects coming up. Um, one is 
looking at the conditions in which that we place people under quarantine, right? Specifically for migrants, we we know that during the pandemic. Some people are completely barred from coming to Canada, but there are certain migrants who are allowed in. Migrant workers being one of those. But then, you know, the condition is that they need to be quarantined, right? Like like most people who are coming into Canada during that period of time. But we're also seeing in the news that the condition of quarantine that people are put under are not always ideal. That there are a few cases. In Ontario, for example, right back in 2021, where、uh, migrants died when they were under quarantine. So then, you know, I think what that invites is an inquiry into what are some of the the minimum standard that we need to demand when we place people under quarantine. Yes, and what what are the gaps? Like what went wrong and what caused that? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And and you know. When we put people under quarantine, do we need to ensure that they have ready access to to healthcare when they need it, or they have ready access to nutrition,、uh, nutritious food, and, and clean water, and not cramped space? Right. Yes, that's very important work, and I look forward to hopefully reading some of those papers <laughs> yeah, once they're complete. And I was just wondering, as a final question,、uh, do you have any advice for any students, either in law or in social work, who want to get involved in helping these migrant populations, and maybe some of your experiences that stood out to you in your journey? I would say that you know, try to listen as much as you can of people's experiences. I often learn a whole lot. In fact, I learn the most in working in this area when when I speak to migrants themselves. They will tell you right what are the gaps, and I think you know based on that we either as lawyers or even social workers or anyone who is working with this population can then rely on our expertise to or you know not so much expertise but at least skills right to uh, identify uh, what are potential solutions to some of those problems that that migrants are facing, but without listening to them. Right, we won't know that, and unfortunately, oftentimes in our society, migrants tend to be the group of people that you know we often don't hear a lot from. We often, you know, especially for example, farm workers, it's almost kind of out of sight, out of mind. Right, we kind of know that they they they're there, they work on the farm, but you know, not a lot of people actually go there and talk to them and and really listen to what they have to say. And in fact, they have a lot to say.、Uh, and so, I would say that listening is important. It's key, and I, I would urge people to do that as the starting point. That's an incredible piece of advice. Very simple and very powerful. I sincerely appreciate it. Thank you for for giving me this platform to to be able to kind of think about all those things I've worked over the years and be able to share with your audience. And I hope you will find this helpful. Yes, it was incredibly helpful and incredibly important, especially at a time like this. So I want to thank you again, Professor Chen, for joining us on the Law School Show. Thank you very much. You've just been listening to the Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, 
new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.